Good morning. Turn in your Bibles to the book of John. We're going to continue our study in John's gospel. We find ourselves in the 11th chapter. And you'll notice that uh, I've slowed down somewhat trying to do nine or ten verses. But I really there's several things in this particular portion of scripture that I want to be able to share with you. Again, this morning, we're looking at John chapter 11, verses 28 through 37. If you've missed any portion of the teaching, you can go to our website. You can go to the media room. There's lots and lots of opportunity to hear the word of God. Let's pray once more. Heavenly Father, again, open up our minds and our hearts. Lord, we pray that the spirit would speak to us concerning those things that we need to hear. And Lord, I know that. Within the sound of my voice, there are people in need. And there is no greater need, Lord, than to hear the gospel, to respond to the gospel, to have the character of Christ formed deep within our hearts. And so, Lord, I pray that by your spirit, Lord, you would speak to these men and women and that you would minister to them. In Jesus name. Amen. John chapter 11, beginning in verse 28. And when she had said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, the teacher has come and is calling for you. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, saying, she's going out to the tomb to weep there. Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, He groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. And some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? It seems that the holidays descend on us quicker and quicker. It used to be that it was the day after Thanksgiving that the lights would come up and the holiday music would begin to play. And I noticed that they keep pushing it back a little bit each year so that the lights and the holiday music come up just a few days before Thanksgiving. Now, there's nothing like the holidays to contrast the question of the things that people want and the things that people need. By the way, what is the difference between a want and a need? A want is a desire for something that might enrich or enhance life, but it isn't necessary for life. A need is something that is fundamental to existence. Douglas MacGregor has written, man is a wanting animal. 
As soon as one of his needs is satisfied, another appears in its place. This process is unending. It continues from birth to death. Man continually puts forth effort, works, if you please, to satisfy his needs, unquote. Edgar Brighton said, the practical man is the man who knows how to get what he wants. The philosopher is the man who knows what he ought to want. The ideal man is the man who knows how to get what he ought to want. I like that. As Christians, we should ask and answer the question, what is it that we ought to want? What is it that you think that you need? When you come here this morning and you open up the Bible and you begin to unfold the circumstances of your own life, what is it that you think that you need? There are three main areas of importance to every human being, according to Earl Nightingale. They are identity, recognition as a person, stimulation, the need for change, an escape from boredom and security, which is the opposite of anxiety. There are also four universal needs common to all humans. There's the need for livelihood. There's a need for maintaining health. There's the need for getting along with other people. And in the end, there is the need to make sure that you are satisfied, if you will, with yourself. So in the end, we all need some food, some sun, some work, some fun, and someone. That's the ultimate need. In the recesses of the soul, we need someone. The Bible teaches that human beings have great needs, and perhaps there's no greater need than the recognition that we're sinners, estranged from God, and that our true identity lies in the fact that we were created by God, for God, for friendship and fellowship that can only be superficially satisfied in our friendships with each other, in our fellowship with each other on the earth. The most fundamental freedom human beings need to experience is freedom from sin, the enslavement that comes from that sin, rebellion and estrangement and anxiety brought on by that sin and the most profound anxiety of all, the anxiety that there's something profoundly wrong. The ultimate anxiety lies in the fact that the Bible says that the soul that sins, it shall surely die. Our greatest needs aren't simply to receive comfort when people closest to us die. It's the need to know that life has meaning and death, when confronted by Jesus, can be overcome. The story of Lazarus, remember what we've already learned, is a tale of two sisters. We've talked about that one sister needs to know that Jesus is in control. The other sister needs to know that Jesus cares. And we discover something that Jesus is both in control and that he cares. But now Jesus is going to also communicate some things. He's going to begin to ask and answer and address the reality of what our real needs really are. 
We need good news. That's what it says in verse 28. We need a right response to that news. That's verses 29 and 30. We need the ability both to receive and give comfort and support. That's verse 31. We need the opportunity to confess our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we find in verse 32. We need the compassion of Jesus the compassion of Jesus that marks our character and then informs our conduct. And that's what we're going to discover in verses 33 to the end of where we're going to stop at verse 37. The first need to hear the glorious message. Look again in verse 28. Read it for yourself. And when she had said these things, that is, Martha spoke, she went her way. She secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, the teacher, ho, didaskalos, the teacher has come and the teacher is calling for you. And so Martha leaves to tell her sister something of the greatest of, of, of importance. Even though she has a weak faith and an incomplete faith, Jesus has shown up and she leaves to tell her sister the good news. The good news, the teachers come and the teachers calling for you. And Martha shares three things. First, the teacher. Second, the teacher or the master has come. Third, the teacher has come for you. This is going to become very important in our study of this particular passage. You see, some people want to hear and heed, but then they want to hoard the gospel. The gospel was something that was meant to be shared. The gospel of love, the gospel of life, the gospel of forgiveness and hope and redemption was meant to be shared. You know, when I find someone who actually knows what they're doing, who's gifted, when I find a gifted man or a woman willing to do the work of the ministry, guess what I don't want to do? I don't want to get rid of them. I want them to stay. Every molecule in my body, every fiber in my being says, Mike and Kristen need to be here and they need to be with me. But guess what? Since the earliest time in the gospel, with the resurrection of Jesus in Jerusalem, it spreads to Judea and Samaria, and then it goes to the uttermost parts of the earth. It's always been the way of the gospel to hear and respond, to see lives changed and transformed. There's a reason why I left Albuquerque, and there's a reason why Skip left California, and there's a reason why Mike is leaving here. Because guess what? The greatest need that human beings have is to hear the gospel. The term, by the way, teacher, translated teacher, like I said, is ho didaskalos. It means the teacher. Jesus isn't just one teacher among many teachers. He isn't a long, he isn't a teacher in a long line of teachers that have come down through human history, like Krishna or Buddha, like Muhammad. Jesus is a teacher who stands alone. He isn't simply the supreme teacher or the best teacher. All teaching and all teachers are evaluated in light of what he teaches. In calling Jesus the teacher, there's a sense in, of both his lordship and his deity. And some people may balk or stumble. But listen to the words of Jesus himself. In John chapter 13, verse 13, it says, 
you call me master and you call me Lord and you say, well, for so I am. Jesus is our master. Jesus is our Lord. Jesus is our instructor. I have the great privilege of being your pastor. I have a great privilege of being the Bible teacher here. But in the end, I am not the instructor. Jesus is the instructor. He is our Lord. He is our master. Jesus is the source of life and Jesus is the source of answers. That's why it is my great privilege to keep pointing you to Jesus as the source of life and the source of answers. You know, William Ward once said, the mediocre teacher tells the good teacher explains, the superior teacher demonstrates, but the great teacher, the great teacher inspires. This is why Jesus is who he is. Jesus isn't simply the person who explains to us the way of life. Jesus isn't simply the person who demonstrates the way of life. Jesus is the one who walks in the way of life and himself becomes the path that leads to eternal life. In Acts chapter 2, verse 36, Luke writes, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know how assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. I didn't make Jesus Lord and Christ. God did. Jesus is both Lord and Christ by the manifestation and the confirmation of of the living Lord in first Corinthians chapter 15 verses three and four, Paul writing, he said, I brought you what I received, something very important that Christ died for our sins. As the Bible said he would, he was buried and he rose on the third day as the Bible said he would. You know what? In my life, particularly after I become a Christian, I'd like to say that only a dozen or a score or a hundred, but I would be wrong. But literally thousands of people that I've met over the last 35 years, not hundreds, but thousands of people who I've witnessed to and shared Christ with face to face, even though they haven't necessarily said it out loud and verbally, they've looked at me and they said, I don't want to hear the gospel. I don't want to hear what you have to say. And that becomes manifest that they don't want to hear the gospel and they don't want to hear what I have to say in their response. Their response to the gospel. <laughs> it's interesting to me. Martha leaves to tell Mary that the teacher has come. It reminds me of a story. A little girl ran into a a classroom, and she told the teacher, two boys are fighting on the playground teacher, and I think the one on the bottom is calling for you. Sometimes the teacher calls for us, and sometimes we call for the teacher. That's been my experience. That the child on the bottom cries out for help. But look what Martha says to Mary. The one who can give us help has finally come. We've, we sing about it in worship. This is the one we've been waiting for. 
This is the one we've been waiting for. The answers we so desperately need are now available. The master, the teacher has come. We're now able to sift through the debris of want and need, of luxury and necessity, of joy and trouble, of trial and temptation, of sorrow and hurt, of loneliness and emptiness, of questions and answers. The master, the teacher has come and he hasn't just simply come, but he's come for you. This Jesus calls and he summons you. I can't help but thinking that the Lord is sometimes wondering where you are. He calls for you and he says, won't you please come? The Lord wants you. And he wants you now. We need to hear the message of hope, but we also need to respond to the message of hope. When I was a young man, I had a a young lady in my sixth grade class. Her name is Carrie Pearson. Her father, Albie Pearson, used to play professional baseball. As a matter of fact, in 1958 and 1959, he was on the cover of Life magazine. He was the Cy Young Award winner. He played center field back in the day for an old team called the Washington Senators. He was traded to the California Angels where he played second base. And in the major leagues, he was called the littlest angel because he was the shortest baseball player in in professional baseball. He had a daughter named Carrie Pearson. She was so stinking cute. And she invited me to her birthday party. And I went to her birthday party And I remember meeting her father, who was a gracious, gracious Christian. And he began to tell me about Jesus. And I was in the sixth grade. And I remember him looking at me and telling me the story of God and the story of Jesus and how Jesus loves me, that he cared about me personally and specifically. And I'll never forget, I I felt this enormous sense of guilt and this enormous sense of shame and this enormous sense that there was something fundamentally profoundly wrong with me. And I remember crying, but I don't remember responding. I remember hearing the words and I remember understanding the words, but then I remembered rejecting the words. You know, there comes a time when The Lord calls and we will respond or we won't respond. Someone once said famously that the gospel isn't so much a discussion or a debate. It falls more in the category of an announcement. And that's what the gospel is. It's an announcement that you can be saved, that you can be forgiven, that you can be restored in a relationship with God and you will accept it or you will reject it. And so we see the need to hear the gospel, but we also see the need to respond to it. Look again in verse 29. It says, as soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. When Mary hears the message given by her sister Martha, the response is immediate. And you know what? When you hear the message, do you respond? 
Do you want to know the meaning of life? Do you want to know about the problem of sin? Do you want to know about the riddle of death? Do you want to know why there are tests and problems and pains and tribulations in this world? And you'll notice it says as soon as she heard that, she got up and note that she didn't ask permission of her family. She didn't consult her friends. She didn't check with the rabbi or the other religious leaders in the neighborhood. And sometimes when we are confronted with the gospel, we think, what will my husband think? What will my wife think? What will my mother, my brother, my my family think about this decision? She doesn't pause to put on her makeup. She doesn't fix her hair. She doesn't iron her dress. Now, remember what I've already told you about Jewish funeral customs. For three days, she hasn't worn shoes. For three days, she has wept. For three days, she has cried her eyes out. And let me tell you something. Women are very conscious of their appearance. Most women won't leave without their makeup and hair. You know, I think about James. Remember the book of James where he says, What man looking in a mirror walks away from the mirror and forgets what he looks like? Every man. There's a reason why it doesn't say every woman looking in the mirror, because guess what? They know exactly what they look like. Appearance. Decorum. They're thrown out the window. Mary has a house full of guests, family, friends, neighbors. Religious leaders who will greet them, who will receive their sympathies, who will express appreciation, who will handle their presence. None of that mattered now because Jesus was calling for her. And let me just be very clear. When Jesus calls you, when Jesus whispers your name, when Jesus calls for you, And asks for you. There is only one appropriate response. You know, I'd like to say that every time Jesus called me, I responded. But that wouldn't be true. From the time I was in the sixth grade until the time I was 16 years old and a teenager... I could hear the voice of God calling me and I could hear my own will resisting and then rejecting God. It wasn't until I came to a place of absolute and utter and fundamental submission to God that I would hear the voice of Jesus and respond to the voice of Jesus. But I'll talk about that a little bit more next week. Look at verse 30. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the town but is in the place where Martha met him. Mary doesn't consider the distance. She doesn't care who's watching. She has, Jesus hasn't come to the town yet. So Mary may have had to travel some distance. We're not told the distance, but we have every reason to believe that it's a very short distance. She's already made the decision to leave the guests. She goes to the place that Jesus tells her to go. You know, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, for he says, in an acceptable time, I have heard you. And in the day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. The day of salvation comes the day that Christ calls you. And we see the third need. 
not only to hear the gospel, not only to respond to the gospel, but the need to help. Look at verse 31. It says, then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, saying she's going to the tomb to weep there. Now, this is interesting. Because the Jews who are with her in the house and comforting her, they when they see Mary rise up, they immediately suspect that she's going to the tomb of her brother to mourn and grieve and weep. But they completely misunderstand both her motives and the message that she's heard. And they focus on the tomb. She's going to the tomb to weep there. By the way, the word translated tomb has also been translated grave. The noun is an interesting word. It's nemion. It's related to the verb nemoneo. The Greek means to remember. We have a word in our own culture, in our own society, in our own In the English language, we call it mnemonics. Mnemonics is the study of memory. Some of you remember that dumb movie by, what's his name? Um, Johnny Mnemonics with Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure Guy. Yes, Keanu Reeves, right. He plays in this this person who has this incredible memory that, that they've created a mechanism where he can store and retrieve information almost Immediately. And, and that's where this word comes from. The word grave or tomb in the Greek language meant the place where you go to remember. That's the meaning in the New Testament, at least in the King James Version. The word translated sepulcher 29 times. The word is translated grave eight times. The word is translated tomb five times. But it always means the place that you go to to remember. People need to be able to extend help to those who are are at a loss, who are suffering, who are in pain. And so there is a sense in which the people see Mary leave. They misunderstand the message. They misunderstand the motive. They misunderstand where she's going. They think Mary is going to the tomb to express her grief over the death of her brother. And remember why they're there. They're there to comfort Martha and to comfort Mary. But you know what's interesting? They're there to comfort Mary and Martha, but by following Mary, they are going to come face to face with Jesus. And when Jesus shows up, when Jesus calls you, when Jesus asks for you, When you respond to Jesus and you go in the direction that Jesus is calling you to go in, sometimes inquiring family and friends will say, where are you going? What are you doing? And maybe like me, you'll say, I'm going to go follow the Lord. Oh, no. Have you become a Jesus freak? I mean, it's one thing to go to church. It's one thing to read your Bible. It's another thing to become a Jesus freak. I mean, everything that you do now, you get up in the morning, you have devotions, you pray, your work is is surrounded by the things that have to do with God. Everything is God with you. Everything is God with you. Uh, Yeah, that's what happens. And remember, 
they are about to share in at least a small way Mary's encounter with Jesus. And I sense that every time I officiate at a funeral. Every funeral that I've ever gone to and every funeral well, that I've ever been the, the, the speaker, if you will, and every grave site that I've visited, there are typically family there to provide support and comfort and presence. And some are absolutely surprised when the message of the gospel is given and all of a sudden the Lord Jesus Christ shows up. Because remember, he is the resurrection and the life. But Jesus is the one who answers sorrow. The friends and neighbors will be given a chance to hear Jesus, see Jesus, trust Jesus. In fact, many will. If you just skip ahead in chapter 11, look at verse 45 for yourself. It says that many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did. Look what it says believed in him because they followed. When you become a Christian, it makes perfect sense that in pain and in sorrow, people might go to the places that you go. And look at the fourth need to confess your faith. Look at verse 32. It says, then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, we've already noted earlier in the chapter, in chapter 11, when Martha meets Jesus, you'll remember In verse 20, it says that Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary was sitting in the house. Verse 21. Now, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. The words are almost the same. Lord, if you had been here. My brother wouldn't have died. The difference isn't so much in the words, but is in the posture. Look what it says in verse 32. She fell down at his feet. Do you know why she fell down at his feet? To worship him. That's what she's doing. And by the way, in that act of worship, She's making a confession. The confession, of course, is that Jesus Christ is Lord. She calls him Lord. She expresses the same concern, the same limited weak faith as her sister. But she does it from the perspective of worship. And again, a careful reading of the New Testament in Luke's gospel in the 10th chapter. We see Mary again, once again, at Jesus's feet in a happier time. My friend John Corson writes, and I quote, Mary is one who both in days of delight and days of difficulty positioned herself at the feet of Jesus Christ. Is that a description of you? We sang about it earlier, remember? In the good times and bad, you are God alone. You are On your throne, 
You see, for Mary, Mary positions herself at the feet of Jesus in both the good times and the bad times and whatever else you think you may need in your heart and in your life. I can guarantee you that you need friendship and fellowship and intimacy with Jesus. Let me tell you where that intimacy can be found. It's found at the feet of Jesus in the good times and in the bad times. In the times of provision and in the times of deprivation. When I was driving to church this morning, another radio pastor was talking about a conversation that he had with someone in the front range, how this particular church had to call each and every person in 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 the church into the senior pastor and the executive pastor's office and they had to begin to lay people off and they let go half of their staff because times are hard and this person was very very discouraged because in times of hardship and times of pain and in times of deprivation Typically, people will come back to the church. If ever there was a time you needed staff, it's, it's not in the good times, it's in the bad times. But the truth is, in the good or the bad, there's only one safe place to be. And that's at the feet of Jesus. We confess our faith, even when it's weak, even when it's limited. Because when you confess your faith, even when it's weak and even when it's limited, it will grow day by day as you walk with Jesus, as you trust the Lord, you confess the Lord. And confession without change is a game that Christians can't afford to play. It's one thing to be able to recite the Apostles' Creed. It's, a, it's one thing to be able to say, I believe in Jesus. I believe that He lived the life that I could never live, that He died on the cross for my sin and that He rose from the dead and He has ascended into heaven and He's seated at the right hand of the Father. It's one thing to say all of those things. But have you changed fundamentally, profoundly, deep in your heart? That's what we need. We need to confess our faith. And the fifth thing, to embrace the compassion of Jesus. Look at verse 33 for yourself. It says, therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. Now, remember what I've already said. The custom of Jews in expressing grief and sorrow was very difficult from our, different from our Western tradition. In our Western tradition, we keep a stiff upper lip. We mourn and we grieve and we often do it in a stoic fashion. But the Jewish people, particularly in the first century, would have been terrifying. There was shrieking and wailing. William Barclay writes, the more unrestrained the weeping, the more honor it paid to the dead. And so... When you and I see someone howling and shrieking and coming unglued, we will typically go, call the doctor. The person has lost it. Now, remember, part of it is a cultural construct. The Bible makes it abundantly clear 
that it makes perfect sense that when there is pain and grief and loss and injury on the inside, that that pain and loss and injury on the inside is manifested on the outside. And Jesus would have been meeting a group of people shrieking, howling, wailing. Now, I want to point out just a couple of things rather quickly. The expression, he groaned in the spirit, is translated from a single Greek verb. It's ine, breme, sato. That one compound word is used elsewhere in the New Testament as something hard or stern. It's a reaction of displeasure, even almost anger. Remember when Jesus sees the money changers in the temple, he has this fit, if you will, this this expression of anger. And so some Bible teachers have suggested that Jesus is upset or even angry with the friends and neighbors because of their superficial religious cultural mourning practices, that they're somehow hypocritical or insincere. But I don't believe that necessarily. We have every reason to believe that both Mary and Martha are absolutely insincere in their expression of grief over the the loss of their brother. The Jewish friends and neighbors, I'm going to suggest, are also sincere in offering hope and comfort. I think it's better to interpret the word to mean intense emotion or profound Feelings. It's, it's almost like the kind of emotion that washes over a person in an involuntary kind of control. In other words, Jesus is gripped with deep emotion. Have you ever had that? Have you ever been in a place of pain or sorrow where the emotion was so overwhelming you didn't feel like you had a handle on things? I remember shortly after Columbine, after the shootings that took place, I was one of the first responders, and our church obviously was located right down the street from Pierce Street. And every day, I would drive by the school, either to get to work or to leave work or to perform an errand. And so I'm driving by the school the first week and the second week and the first month and the second month. And emotion is piling up inside of me. And six months after Columbine, I was invited to speak at a church in Phoenix, Arizona. To speak to this group of people about some of my experiences and insight. And I really wanted to speak to them. I speak for a living. That's what I do. And I was ready to speak to them. And I was quite unprepared for the emotional response that I myself experienced. When I walked up the stairs and I got behind the podium and I I wanted to speak, the words were caught in my throat and I couldn't speak at all. And I began to weep and I began to cry. And then I became angry and frustrated because I didn't want to cry and I didn't want to weep. I wanted to be able to speak. I had something to say and I wanted to be able to say it. And I asked for a moment. And I said, will you please give me a moment? And then I took that moment. And then I began to speak. And as I spoke, I spoke about hope and grace and mercy and the love of God 
the forgiveness of God, reconciliation of God. And afterwards, a woman came up to me and she said, a few months ago, my six-year-old daughter died of brain cancer. And a few weeks ago, my husband left me. The pain, sorrow, the pressure. As many of you know, that the loss of a child can, can bring untold agony on, on, a, on a family. And I began to pray and I said, Lord, what should I say to this woman? What do you say to her? Her daughter has died. Her husband has left her. What words of encouragement can I give? And, and I remember thinking to myself, ask her if she had to do it all over again, would she? And so I asked her, I want you to go back in space and time. I want you to pretend like there was that moment that you met her father. You never met him. You never got married. You never had this baby. You never went to the hospital. There were never tubes and, and needles. There was never any of that. It never happened. She never died. You never, your husband never left you. If you could make it all go away and if you could do it and you had it to do all over again, would you? What do you suppose she said? That's exactly right. She said, yes. I would do it all over again. And I asked her why. And she said, for the opportunity to have her in my life, to walk with her and watch her grow and to have her be a part of my life and to have her sit on my lap and look in my face and, and say the words, Mommy, I love you. But you know what happened at that point? That I'm crying now. But there was a weight. There was a darkness. There was the sorrow lifted off of the surface of her soul. You, you could see a clear change in her countenance because she understood that her, that her life was meaningful and important. It's that idea in every pang that rends the heart, the man of sorrows has a part. And many Greek philosophers held the view that God was incapable of feeling or emotion. Or even they would use this term apatheia to refer to God. It's the same word that you and I use, apathy. It's the idea to totally Feel any emotion whatsoever, the inability to feel emotion. The, the Greeks would argue that if God could feel anything, if he could feel joy or sorrow or gladness or grief, it meant that someone or something could have an effect on God. And since no one can have an effect on God or exercise any power over God, this must mean that God was incapable of feeling or incapable of emotion. The Greeks believed in an isolated, passionless, compassionless God. But Jesus reveals God as a God who deeply cares that he is deeply anguished over his people. And Jesus is genuinely moved by Martha's sorrow. He's genuinely gripped by Mary's hurt and pain. And those who are genuinely shrouded in grief over the death of their loved one. And I'm going to suggest to you that Jesus groans in spirit because he absolutely understands. He absolutely feels and experiences the compassion of every single hurting person. And the words translated and was troubled in the original language. It means to be 
deeply agitated. It means to be profoundly moved in the context of grief. And so he asks, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Now, Bible students, whenever they see a question in the New Testament, particularly a question by Jesus, they're prone to ask this question. Why would Jesus ask the question? Question to you. Does Jesus know everything? Does he know where Lazarus is? He does. He knows exactly where he is. So why does he ask the question? Well, I'm going to suggest a couple of things to you. If Jesus had gone straight to the tomb, there would have been those critics who would have charged Jesus and Lazarus with collusion, with faking the whole incident that somehow the real Lazarus disappeared. They put somebody else in the grave and that they were going to pull the old switcheroo, sort of like first century David Copperfield, fake the death and fake the resurrection for the specific purpose of deceiving the people. And I'm also going to suggest another thing. That questions have a way of diffusing emotion and changing expectations. When I'm with people in pain, I'll ask them simple questions. Tell me your daughter's name. Tell me how old she was. What was her favorite color? What was her favorite toy? What do you miss most about her? When Jesus asks the question, I'm going to also suggest to you that Jesus changes the expectation. The moment that he says, where have you laid him? There is a sense in which someone must have asked, what's he going to do? What's he going to do? Something amazing is about to happen. By the way, I think there's one more thing. Does Jesus care about the dead? I think so. Jesus wants to know where every spiritually dead man and woman are in that sense every human being lies in a grave a place of spiritual death there is a grave a place of spiritual death inside of the human heart that cries out for life and anyone who wants to escape death must look to Jesus and look at the next verse. Jesus wept. You thought you had a hard time memorizing scripture? You could do this one, couldn't you? If you can do, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, you can memorize this one. Just think John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Okay, I can do this one. Certainly the verse has been called the shortest verse in the Bible. The word is dakruo, and it seems to mean burst into tears. Others have suggested it means an intensive, 
bursting into tears. Some translators have said it is in an intensive case. It means to sob with little regard to control. It's certainly not the same word that's used to describe the weeping of Mary in verse 31 and the weeping of the Jews in verse 33. At the very, very least, it means tears ran down his face. Jesus delays. Jesus stays away. Jesus shows up. Jesus goes to the grave. Jesus enters into the sorrows. Again, Barclay writes about this verse, that this would be the most astonishing thing in the astonishing story that the Son of God could weep would be almost beyond belief. Why does he weep? He knows that in a matter of moments, Lazarus is going to emerge from the grave. The disease is going to be gone. The corrupting consequences are going to be gone. The decaying carcass is going to be gone. Lazarus is going to come back to life. He knows he's coming back to life. So why does he weep? Question. You know of at least one place in the New Testament where Jesus weeps. We're there. Who can tell me the second place in the New Testament where Jesus weeps? Go ahead. Pretend it's a Pentecostal church and you can talk to me. No, he doesn't weep in the Garden of Gethsemane. He does shed great droplets of blood. He's on the road. He's being crucified. Remember, he comes to Jerusalem. Remember when he says he cries, he weeps over Jerusalem. And he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how long I would have gathered you into my arm like like a hen gathers her chicks. But you wouldn't let me. In other words, the other occasion where Jesus weeps is over the future fate of the city, he's weeping over an unresponsive and unrepentant group of people who have completely misunderstood who he is. Jesus weeps. Minimum, because he is a man of sorrows and he's acquainted with grief. He weeps for the sisters and he weeps for the sorrow in his own heart. And most astonishing of all, I'm going to suggest to you. He weeps. Because he is God. He is completely human. But he's also completely divine. He sees what no one else sees. He doesn't simply see the orifice of a grave. He sees Lazarus in a perfect place. He sees Lazarus in company with the saints and the angels. He sees Lazarus at rest and beyond the bitter troubles of this life. He sees Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and David and the spirit of the men made just. He sees everything He sees Lazarus in the place where time stands still and where everyone awaits the perfections of God in Christ the Lord. 
and he weeps for Lazarus. Now the day may come when I unexpectedly die and you unexpectedly come to my funeral. And I'm not going to, I'm an Italian person, it's not going to make me angry if you weep. But for God's sake, for Christ's sake, don't call me back. People always ask me, how did the funeral go? And I say, it wasn't a biblical funeral. At every funeral that we find Jesus in the New Testament, the guy comes back to life. Every funeral I officiate, they always stay dead. And for good reason. Because I'm not the resurrection and the life. But Jesus is. And look what it says in verse 36. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. Is that true? It is true. Jesus loves Lazarus. Jesus loves Mary. He loves Martha. That isn't so shocking, is it? What is shocking is that Jesus loves the Jews, that Jesus loves the very people who draw attention to the public expression. They don't realize it, but Jesus loves them every bit as much as he loves Lazarus. Jesus loves the religious leaders who will mock him and arrest him and spit on him and beat him and abuse him and murder him. He loves the Roman officials who will condemn him and the soldiers who will place the nails in his hands and feet. He loves the wicked priests and the selfish rulers. He even loves that sly fox Herod and that clueless magistrate Pilate. And you may not believe it. But he loves you. With the same intensity. With the same passion. With the same heart that he loves Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And he loves you. Even if you've heard him, disobeyed him, or disbelieved him. And look at verse 37. It says, And some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Again, I'm continually amazed at the ability of human beings to misunderstand Jesus and to misunderstand the Bible and to misunderstand the nature of Christ and the character of God and the power of God and how the promises of God are connected to the character of God, that God is incapable of doing anything other than what is completely consistent with his character. And they ask a question that's been uttered in every generation. If Jesus loves you, if he loves me, how could he let this happen. They ask the question that burns on the heart of every atheist and agnostic and skeptic and unbeliever and make believer. Why does an all powerful God, if he is good, allow suffering and sorrow and injustice and pain and death? And certainly the problem doesn't lie in the fact that Jesus loves you. And certainly the problem doesn't lie in the fact that he has no control over the problem. The problem lies in a human being's inability to see the big picture or even the small picture. 
the imperfect picture that we live in a world corrupted by sin, subject to decay, entrenched in trial and trouble, surrounded and submerged in sorrow, subject to death, with hell looming right on the horizon. And some have argued, well, if he's all powerful, then he's not really good. And if he's really good, then he's not really powerful. Otherwise, he would intervene. And that, by the way, is the position more or less embraced by the Jews and the liberal scholars. And they will murder him. Because they believe that he's simply a man. And the truth is, he's not. He's completely human and he's completely God and he has done something about sin. The Father has sent Jesus the Son. And the simple fact is that God has done something about your sin. And the power of sin in your life. And for those of you who have received Christ, sin has been broken. The presence of sin might still be awaiting final adjudication. But guess what? God has done something about your sin. And one day, He will completely... Not just have power over sin and over the presence of sin, but one day it will be completely done away with. Jesus will confront the grave. He will come face to face with what seems to be the ultimate enemy. And he will win. Just remember, when delay occurs, God has a better time and a better way. And just remember, when death occurs, God has a better plan and a better purpose. And just remember, when doubt occurs, that God's character provides the bedrock for God's promises. And he will make good on what he has promised. Lazarus is coming back to life. Oh, but that's next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord. It's so easy to get confused about what we think we want. Or what we think we need. Lord, we need the gospel. We need to respond to the gospel. We need the ability, Lord. To help others. And we need the ability to confess our faith. Lord, I pray that, that each and every person within the sound of my, my voice would begin to understand the difference between a want and a need. That in the end, the dozens of people, the scores of people, the hundreds of people, the thousands of people that we come in contact with, they will look us straight in the eye and they will tell us that they don't need a Savior. But we know that that's not true. And so, Lord, we pray that we would have the courage to look them right back in the eye and say there's something that you need so much that you'll never be satisfied. You'll always be empty until you come to grips with this one thing in your life. You need a Savior. And that Savior is Jesus.
that there is no Savior who isn't also the Lord. Lord, give us the courage to stop preaching salvation apart from discipleship. That when we come to Jesus, we come forever. And we come permanently, irrevocably, unmistakably. And like we sing, no turning back. Amen. Let's stand.